Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. It's Kelly Moore in for a vacationing Hal Anderson, and today we heard from Radel Bautista, a parent who lost a son to meth and cocaine addiction and has some very passionate thoughts about what the first tangible step should be with respect to the illicit drug task force. Murata Tesh of The Athletic Winnipeg joined us to talk about the Jets who were lost to free agency and why fans maybe shouldn't be fretting as much as they are over that. And I'd be willing to bet that the folks at Archangel Fireworks were among the busiest people on July 1st. So we'll speak to their consumer sales manager, Sean Proctor, about what was the most popular item on Canada Day and how many people celebrated with a bang. The reason we want uh, Rod on today, you uh, people who have listened to this station and listened to it on a, uh, a very uh, regular basis will probably remember this story. It goes back to last summer. Uh, unfortunately, the event occurred almost a year ago now on July the 29th. A young man by the name of Gabriel Pereira took his own life. He was addicted to cocaine and meth. He also uh, uh, had to encounter some uh, mental health issues. Uh, his stepfather is Rod Batista, who first uh, went on social media uh, to talk about uh, what his family had gone through and the effort that they had put in. Uh, the whole family to try and uh, and save Gabe and and Rod. The reason we wanted you on today is because the uh, meth report uh, from the task force came out on Friday. I'm not sure how many people would have heard about it, would have dived into it because it was the Friday going into a long weekend. Uh, but one of the things that uh, after uh, I'm not saying I've read it cover to cover, but one of the things that uh, that struck me in looking at the people who were on the task force and also some of the things that were written and said. I wonder how many boots on the ground type people were involved in this. And uh, I'm sure that uh, you would probably have some thoughts on it. Yeah, you know, um, the, the biggest thing that, that we encountered is, is really not knowing what to do. Even, even when um, we had uh, moments that, that Gabriel wanted to seek recovery and wanted to get better, just, just knowing where to go and what to do. And I think that's, First and foremost, what we need to define is is how we can actually help the people that need this this help, um, and we need to get into specifics and we need to we need to come up with a plan and take action immediately because it's affecting us more and more every day. Right. When you, however much of this report you have read about or you have uh, watched or listened to, Rod. Were any of your questions about where to go to get help, how to get help, were any of them answered by what you have seen so far out of this report? Not at all. Like, all, all, all we have are, are, are suggestions of the direction that the that, that, that government should be going. Now, there's a recommendation for, for things like um, the police force and, and how, how we're dealing with the criminality of, of drug addiction, but what exactly is the plan? Now, what is exactly the plan? There's there's a recommendation for more detox centers and and um, 24-hour safe spaces, but when and where? Um, that's a huge obstacle. Is is a detox center? There's one here in Winnipeg. Now, even figuring out where to go, like where do you go? Where do you take your loved one if if they're 
you know, in the throes of addiction? Do you take them to the emergency room? Do you take them to the police department? Do you take them to AFM or do you take them to BHF? Like, where is the, the roadmap to, to get this done? You know, we're only hearing one side of it. We're only hearing about the people that are admitted to the emergency room that, that, that become violent. We're, we're hearing about the violent crime, but we're not hearing about what's happening with those people that are actually addicted or how they become addicted or, or what can those people who are addicted that aren't, you know, performing violent crimes or, or going to the emergency emergency room, what, what can they do other than a couple hours every week at a, at a drug addictions treatment center that I, I doubt even the majority of the city knows exists. Yeah. Right? Well, with the rap- you're talking. You're speaking of the RAM clinics, R A A M clinics that uh, yeah. that are open on a very infrequent basis, at least at this point. Yeah, like, uh, it's it's what a couple hours uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like I don't even I don't even know the details of it, right? But he, even at that point, what type of treatment is available there? Do do you go there to to find out if if there's a if there's a program that you can enter, is, is there information available? Um, do they put you through an intake program at AFM or, 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 or VHF or, or whatever programs are available? Um, there, there isn't a roadmap or there isn't a, a plan to attack this whatsoever. Nothing cohesive anyways. Uh, for, from my experience and from what I'm, what I'm hearing, it's all just patchwork, right? Um, it, it's, it's all just... Um, different initiatives that are being brought forth, but not nothing really concrete or, or cohesive to, to really attack this epidemic that, 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 you know, our population is under siege with, right? I know there was a lot of talk on Friday about the fact that uh, there was no consensus reached on a safe consumption site. And then a few other people I've spoken to, Rod, have said, well, they don't really know if a safe consumption site would be apl- applicable or or helpful to someone who is addicted to meth. You've been there and you have lived through that. So what would your thoughts be? You know, anything, anything would be safer than, than what the alternative is now. Like, so um, we have to come to grips with the fact that uh, addicts are all around us, that addiction is going to, to touch you in, in various different ways. And, and we have to come to grips with the fact that, Everybody in this city has been touched by addiction in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, we have to be realistic about things, right? Should we be really, um, you know, looking at the criminal element? Should we be punishing users or should we be going after the people that are distributing them? Um, <laughs> there, there's so many things that can be discussed, but, but throwing out theories without even, without even really looking into what the effects are, um, is kind of, you know, short-sighted, right? Um, let's look around the world. Let's look around at, at different, different governments that have implemented radical change and see, see what's happening. Let's take a look at and do a case study on, on what they did in Portugal when they were hit with a huge drug epidemic in the mid-70s to, to, to mid-80s, and they decriminalized um, drug use. They didn't decriminalize drugs itself. There are still illicit illegal drugs in Portugal, right? But we're talking about um, a country now that has less than 16 overdose deaths through the whole country for, for the year, right? Um, we, we want to we we solve the problem, right? But we're not really taking a look and taking a hard look at what, what can be done. 
Uh, just before the news, you, you were talking about, you know, where do you start? Do you start with uh, whether it's the law enforcement uh, and cracking down on the suppliers, or or do you look at uh, possibly the rehabilitation? And, and so let's focus on that. If you were to get the ear of this task force, if you were able to stand in the room right in the middle of them and say, here is the first thing you should be turning into action rather than recommendation, what might that be? Have the resources for treatment, whether it's short-term, long-term, or even have intake to assess what, what these addicts need. Um, take the opportunity, instead of throwing them in a jail cell, Take the opportunity to ask these addicts, how can we help? And if they're willing, right, even if they're not willing, take steps to get them rehabilitated and, and let them know that they're not alone. We, we have to stop pushing addicts away. We have to stop going to, to what was determined in the early 20th century, what we should do with addicts and, and, and ostracize them and punish them for, for use. But understand that it's an illness and bring them closer. Because if we're not going to create those bonds with the people that need to bond with, with other human beings and get the help that they need, they're going to bond with something else. And that bond is going to be created with meth, with heroin, with cocaine, or any drug of their choice. That's the reason why they're addicted. We need to find a way to reach out and actually tackle this as a healthcare epi- epidemic that it really is. And it's not a behavioral choice. Sure, the, the choice to first take a drug is yours, but how many people have taken, you know, have, have um, had a drink underage or had, have had a, a toke of a, a joint uh, at, at some point in their life? Plenty of people have, and they don't become addicted. The problem is addiction is, is a disease that can affect anyone at any time, and we need to recognize that, and we need to tackle it like our children are getting sick every day. And if this was a different type of epidemic, we would have we would have been on it um, years and years and years ago, right? But but it's that bond, it's that bond that that people you know when we ostracize these people for for being the addicts that they are and treat them uh, like a criminal, then they 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 live in a in, in a life of solitude and and they will bond with what they can reach out to, and that's their their drug of choice. Right. And Rod, I do not have the life experience that you do, and I'm not even going to try to perpetuate that. But one thing that really stood out uh, for me that resonated, someone made the comment that if we put as much financial backing into what you just described uh, compared to the resources that it costs, uh, whether it's through law enforcement or through the health system, we'd still be way, way far ahead. Would we not? Absolutely, we would. We, we don't look at it that way, though. But we haven't. And we have to flip the perspective. And, it, it, you know, there, there is some momentum being, being made, right? There is some more awareness. But, you know what, there are, there are thousands, I'd say millions of people across this country that suffer in silence because of the stigmas that exist, right? It's shameful to have somebody in your family that, that is an addict, right? But the more that we reach out, the more that we share our stories, the more that my family can share our story of, uh, you know, a, a regular loving family with, with kids that are flourishing and thriving as well. We had, we had one child that suffered with mental, with mental health issues and, and, and drug addiction. And it wasn't because of a lack of love and it wasn't because of a lack of awareness, right? It's, it, 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 we were 
we were affected by this disease that can that can reach anybody. And I, I just I just think that the more we talk, the more we share, the more we, we understand this, the more people will come out and the more we, re- we will realize that this is something that is prevalent everywhere and that we really need to take action now. Rod, uh, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us. And just if one final question, if I can ask you this, how is your family doing? Uh, if, if you don't you know, mind me asking that. Yeah, you know, every day is a struggle. Um, we miss it more and more, especially with uh, every occasion that comes by. But um, we're, we're doing the best that we can to uh, to to raise awareness. Like my wife has got to be the strongest person on the on the face of this planet. But uh, we talk about it every day. We talk about Gabriel every day. We we, we talk about him with love, and we we truly have the goal of, of changing things for the rest of for the rest of this city, province, and country. We we really just want to raise awareness and make sure that we can really save as many families as we can from from suffering what what, what we did with with Gabriel. But you know, every day is a blessing for us as a family. Every day we remember Gabriel, and uh, you know, every day of our lives from here on end, we'll be fighting for for change and um, you know for for yeah. change and healing. Thank you for uh, for the words of passion. Uh, very much appreciated because for those of us who have not gone through what you and your family have, Rod, we need to have a better understanding of this too. And uh, when we have someone uh, like you describe that, I think it, it helps bring it all uh, into vogue. So I, I really do hope that some of the things you said get pressed into action very quickly uh, by this task force. Uh, I certainly hope that we're able to we're, we're able to talk to you again another time when some of these things have been done and, and then we can move on to step number two. Yeah, any anytime, anytime you need me to speak, I, I, I would love to speak at, at any, any opportunity that I have. Thank well, you very much for having me. We'll give you the platform, absolutely. That's uh, Rodel Bautista. Uh, as he mentioned, his son Gabriel passed away just a little less than a year ago uh, because of meth and cocaine addiction and also dealing with some health issues. And as Rod mentioned, step number one, you have to be able to create an environment where people feel comfortable about going for help rather than being afraid of doing that. Well, yesterday, I did do some odd jobs, but I also spent a lot of time going back and forth to see who was spending what on who on NHL Free Agency Day. It's For hockey fans, it's like Christmas. I guess the trading deadline would probably be about as close to uh, Christmas as uh, NHL free agent day. And uh, I'll tell you, I have become such a huge fan, as I know many of you have, uh, of this gentleman. He writes for The Athletic. Uh, he is based out of Winnipeg, and uh, he truly is a treasure to have uh, in our industry. I'm talking about Murata Tesh, who joins me now. And uh, Murata, I'm not saying this just because you're on the line. I uh, try to brag you up as much as I possibly can whenever I'm on social media. So I do appreciate taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to have a few minutes with us here today. Kelly, I'm so glad to be here. And those were such kind words. So thank you very kindly for, for that. I, I first off, I, just before we talk about free agency, I have to ask you: Did the NHL draft in Vancouver measure up to your expectation? Because I know you were like a kid in a candy store going in there. 
Yeah, absolutely it did. It was a bit of a stunning experience. I mean, it was overwhelming kind of in the in the best possible way. We had a, an event with the Athletic the day before, a couple of days before the draft with 65 of us in the same room. So I'm meeting kind of the, the all-star team around the NHL, two or three writers in each major city, and just looking around at the Duhatcheks and LeBruns and, and just thinking, wow, I can't believe that this is this is how this world looks and sort of got tutorials from so many different people on how to level up and continue to, to get better at what I do. And then the draft itself, um, that was a, a wonderful experience as well. And uh Vili Hainola, I was able to put together a feature story about Winnipeg's first round pick and, and his family and his upbringing and the parallels it has between him, between Finland and the prairies here in, in Canada as well. So I, I'm still a buzz from it. I'm fired up, I got to tell you. <laughs> well, there might not have been quite the fireworks in Vancouver that was being predicted, but uh, uh, there certainly was on July the 1st. A lot of players uh, wound up selling uh, fairly significant contracts. Uh, we'll talk about some of the other teams in a moment, but Murat, first off, we'll, we'll concentrate on Winnipeg because the Jets lost a couple of blue chippers. Uh, not only as players, but uh, just as much as uh, as people in Tyler Myers and Brandon Tanev. And uh, if you're a true fan, you'll be disappointed they're leaving the team, but you'll be happy because those guys certainly worked hard to, to get the deals that they uh, wound up getting from Vancouver and Pittsburgh yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. They're two quality human beings, and, and I would have had the pleasure of working with them on, on stories over the last couple of years. Uh, I have nothing but good things to say about either either person and uh, the UFA system, the way it is, the free agency. This is the, this is what the players fought for in the CBA, getting uh, getting these rights. Uh, when you have lots of different bidders on quality hockey players, the price goes up, and it's it's sometimes tough for teams to get value. The the numbers are absolutely huge in terms of the contract dollars. Myers getting six million per year over five years, and Tanev getting three point five million over six years from Pittsburgh. Um, those are big dollars, and I don't think Winnipeg was in any way, shape, or form able to afford that or able to believe that they would get value from it. Uh, still, all the best to all the best to them as they move on and take the next steps. So, maybe not to the same degree that some people were looking at those contracts, but uh, you feel Vancouver and Pittsburgh overpaid for Myers and Tanev then? Uh, I definitely do, and I, I feel like that's very tough not to do on unrestricted free agency day. I mean, I'm looking at this cap friendly tweet from about dinner time yesterday. There were 111 signings on July 1st by about 5 PM uh, worth a cap hit of over $204 million. Um, almost uh, two thirds of a billion dollars were spent or committed yesterday. And with the way that the NHL system has worked, um, a player comes into the league on their entry level contract, that's artificially low. There are mechanisms in place to keep it cheap, and, and you can get a lot of value from that, as we've seen from Patrick Laine, Kyle Connor down the line. Uh, the second contract is artificially low because the restricted free agency system uh, gives just one team the ability to negotiate for that player, um, although we did see an offer sheet go out yesterday that we can talk about if you like. But the unrestricted free agency system, where there's lots of different bidders, um, and players usually, you know, in their mid twenties, late twenties, prime of their career area, it's built to overpay. And if you need the player, I guess you do it. Uh, and Winnipeg was in a tighter situation than that. Yeah, and we could see that through the jet signings, and we certainly will address the offer sheet in a moment, Murat. But uh, yeah, you know, when you take a look at at the the players the Jets have signed, uh, Nathan Beaulieu, who they did not qualify, but they were able to sign for one point four million less. Uh, than what he was being paid the year before, and then and then today, you know, these guys are not going to come in and save the season for the Winnipeg Jets by any stretch of the imagination. But 
a guy like a Mark Latestu or an Anthony Boteto could certainly come in and be a serviceable uh, depth part for you if injuries were to strike, not maybe on a long-term basis, but certainly out for the short term. Yeah, I think that's the strategy in Winnipeg right now. And I, I've been advocating at The Athletic for sort of frugality and patience. And I think that's exactly what you've seen from Winnipeg so far, looking more at these budget signings. And, and it's a really nice play with Nathan Beaulieu. i got to say, um, after not qualifying him, because the, the cost would have been, like you say, much more expensive just on a qualifying offer, to continue that dialogue, get the negotiation going, and maybe give Beaulieu a chance to bet on himself for this one-year, $1 million deal with Winnipeg's defensive depth not being what it was just a year ago. I think that's a smart play for Winnipeg. And then today is Latesto and Potato. Pardon my pronunciation, my quick uh, tongue there. It's tough to, to get these things out. But with these two players, they're both, uh, they're both tweeners at this stage of the game. I expect them to be press boxers for Winnipeg, perhaps drawn in from time to time, or AHL players from Manitoba. And the way their contracts are set up at $700,000 if they're in the NHL or 350 if they're in the AHL, they're built that way. Um, they would have to pass through waivers, but I think at training camp, that's the sort of situation where, where that would work. Uh, and the most important thing in my mind in Winnipeg right now is just not committing what I would call dead money, you know, big ticket contracts, no movement clauses, all these sorts of things that would maybe put Winnipeg in a difficult position a year from now when some money is uh, already set to sort of come off the books. Right. Now, I was looking at different stories that were uh, uh, written by The Athletic uh, leading up to and during uh, July the 1st, and there was one name uh, in, in an article that, that I kind of thought, I wonder if this guy, if he hangs around for a while, if he might be the kind of a guy that Kevin Dayoff would take a one-year uh, uh, trial balloon on, if you will. Uh, and that's a, a guy like Dion Phaneuf. Does he have anything left at all that he could not be a fifth or sixth defenseman, uh, Murat, or do you think that's uh, just a direction that the Winnipeg Jets should not go? You know, he's such an interesting story. I, I've never seen a player hit such heights in terms of his uh, on-ice game uh, so early in his career. He basically sprung onto the scene uh, in his early 20s as a top-pairing defenseman, just freshly arrived, put up big offensive totals, and um, was really a, really a special player in a lot of different situations. For L.A. last year, he was more of a third-pairing defender, and still playing at the NHL level. Um, his his numbers were actually reasonable. There's an NHL player. There's a, at least a third-pairing player in there, the, the way that I see it. And the, the big question with him is going to be, what's that salary going to be worth as he's just been bought out? He might be able to take a little bit less, given that he'll have a paycheck coming in as well. Uh, and then perception on the guy, where he's at as a player and as a person at this stage in his career, um, if, he, if he's ready to take on that smaller role. And I think the, the last few years might imply that, that he would be ready. I don't know if the Jets have done their diligence or their research on him or what they think of him at this stage of his career, but I think that as a value signing, potentially, it would be at the very least worth exploring. I like the thought. Yeah, yeah it, was just, it was just one of those names that jumped off the page, and in light of where the Jets are with their defense right now, I thought, you know, that might be a guy you'd uh, take a look at. Murat Atesh of The Athletic, uh, based out of here uh, in Winnipeg, is joining us uh, for a little free agency talk. Murat, you uh, brought up the offer sheet uh, that the Montreal uh, Canadiens signed Sebastian Ajo to uh, five years, $42.25 million. So the reason that uh, that amount uh, was negotiated is because it left 
Uh, Montreal right at the zenith, if you will, of the third level of compensation for uh, an offer sheet for a restricted free agent. So if Carolina had not decided to match, it would have been a first, second, and a third round pick. But Carolina has made it clear they're they're going to match. So I guess the thing I would take a look at now, Murat, and uh, at 12.25 I kind of asked out loud, so Mark Bergevin pretty much knows that he's not going to get Sebastian Ajo. He's got $9 million or so burning a hole in his pocket. You know, should teams like Winnipeg and Calgary and, and perhaps Toronto be a little bit nervous and maybe uh, expedite the process with their restricted free agents, or does it just not simply work that way? I think it's tough. Uh, and I think it's very tough, as we saw yesterday. So Montreal's best effort was this 8.454 million AAV deal that Carolina would love to pay Sebastian Ajo that that much money. I think in terms of his on-ice value, that's an easy match, and that's what they did. And uh, if you believe Sarah Sivian, the athletics writer from Carolina, there was actual celebration when that offer sheet was made in Carolina because they were pleased that they were going to get him for maybe less than they anticipated. Um, Montreal did try to structure it with a whole lot of money in terms of signing bonuses to maybe make it financially difficult, even if the... uh, cap hit was uh, in Carolina's favor. It didn't work out. And now to Patrick Laine, to Kyle Connor, and to, to listen to Pierre Lebrun, I think Kyle Connor's camp has been called. People are sort of poking around, although I don't expect necessarily Kyle Connor to sign an offer sheet. This is the new NHL, and the fact that the ice has been broken, I think you make a really good point of asking that question. Um, and once you get just like you said, there's tiers to the compensation you get depending on what the value is. So if Kyle Connor were to get this 8.454 million AAV offer and the compensation was a first round pick, a second round pick, and a third round pick, that's not much in terms of trade assets for a guy with a 30 goal resume, you know, year in and year out thus far, and then presumably a promising player uh, moving forward. Still, it's a big cap hit, a big price tag. We put Winnipeg in a bind. Um, there would be some difficult decisions to make. And I, and I think at that point, um, Kevin Shevel-Dayoff would have a, a lot to look for. And if you go into that next uh, tier, just above that, about $8.5 mark, and there's two first-round picks, a second and a third, all of a sudden things get a little bit more difficult. I think with Kevin Shevel-Dayoff and Kyle Connor, the, the conversations are ongoing, and I expect that, uh, that it'll be a smooth arrival in terms of Winnipeg's, uh, Winnipeg being able to retain him. And I think that it's Patrick Liney's camp going between that long term and that bridge and finding the right value that we could be waiting for a little bit later into the summer. Does that mean Winnipeg should expedite everything just on account of this? I'm not sure, because at the end of the day, if you're Carolina or you're Winnipeg in these situations and there's a signed contract offer that a player has agreed to, um, in some cases, I think that the Jets could actually get a solid deal like Carolina did in terms of the AAV at the end of it. That's a whole lot of I'm not sure, but those are the reasons why I think in each direction. Yeah, and and the thing that has to be remembered here as well is that uh, the Montreal Canadiens had a willing participant in Sebastian Ajo. We don't know if Kyle Connor or Patrick Lyonet would like to leave Winnipeg and and would sign an offer sheet. So, you know, that's that's kind of an important part of the process as well. Uh, Murat, just before we let you go here, with the deals that were signed yesterday, uh, and I don't wish ill will on anybody. I love hockey players. I think they are some of the best people on this earth, uh, not only because of their ability, but because of what they do because of their ability and their profile. Many of them uh, contribute away from the game. But I just I look at a, a deal like the one that 
Uh, Matt Duchesne signed with the Nashville Predators and can't help but think that somewhere along the line, whether it's year five or year six, that that contract is all of a sudden going to handcuff whether it's David Poyle or whoever is the general manager in Nashville at that time. Yeah, and I think that's the big risk with unrestricted free agency for the teams. Uh, I think that's the reality of the landscape is that, um, like we sort of spoke off the off the hop there, an entry-level contract, well, that's artificially cheap. There's a maximum that it can be. And if you've got Patrick Laine scoring 30 or 40 goals while still on an entry-level contract, that's guaranteed value. The second RFA contracts, they're progressively getting more and more expensive, but there's still places where teams like the Jets can get a lot of value. Mark Shifley is a great deal. Nick Ehlers, and ideally, um, you know, if the team does well this summer, Kyle Connor and Patrick Laine as well. But these unrestricted free agency things, it's a bidding war. The market is what it is, and I think that it's the least efficient way to spend money in the NHL today, and it's a big risk for the teams. Sometimes they feel it's worth it. I guess Nashville believes that it's got a a window to try to exploit in the next little while, Um, and maybe some money burning a hole in their pocket after trading P.K. Subban as well. Uh, So I... I completely agree that it's it's a major risk, but it's it's a right that the players have and power to them the the days that they do get those those big tickets. Oh yeah, no, no, I would. Hey, trust me, there isn't a player in the world I would criticize for signing whatever a team's willing to pay for him. No, I'm I'm thinking more from the team aspect. Is there one one signing just before we let you go, Murat, in particular uh, that had you kind of scratching your head yesterday? I I, I would go with the Deshane one for me, but. Uh, uh, was there any uh, any particular big deal that you thought, mm, I don't know about this one? You know, quite sincerely, I'll keep it local. In, in terms of the Brandon Tan of uh, $3.5 million over six years, he's still relatively new to the NHL. Um, he had a couple of hot streaks, and boy, do we love the style that he plays with. But $3.5 million over six years uh, implies that this guy has consistent offense that I don't think that we've seen quite yet. Um, and uh, and the amount of commitment that six years to a player still um, that came up through Winnipeg after a college career and is still relatively new to the NHL, I think that's a big bet on Brandon Tanev. And, and like we've said, power to the player in that situation, uh, and, and Tanev was great to work with and a really popular player here in Winnipeg, but I think that's a lot of money and a lot of term. <laughs> no kidding. Hey, Marat, I really appreciate it. I know you're pretty busy these days uh, with all the different projects you have going. So thanks for the time here this afternoon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kelly. You bet. And I'll tell you, if you want to follow, if you're on Twitter, follow at WPG Murat, M-U-R-A-T. He is definitely worth it. And I put my money where my mouth is. I am a proud subscriber to The Athletic. It's the best money I spend uh, in terms of that uh, particular part of my entertainment. So thus, we're just having a gay old time of whatever it was we were doing on Canada Day, whether we were sitting in the backyard having a cold one, maybe going down to the Forks, Assiniboine Park, Osborne Street Village, all of the great places to go to throughout Winnipeg to celebrate Canada Day. And I know, I know I've know, i missed a few, so I'm sorry if I missed your area because I know there were plenty. But there were people who were absolutely run off their feet. And I'm not just talking about the food vendors. I'm talking about the people who deal with fireworks. And our good friends at Archangel Fireworks, many of them did not get to bed this morning till the wee hours. And it wasn't because they were celebrating. They were making the reason for people to celebrate. And the manager of consumer sales, Sean Proctor, joins us now. Hi, Sean. How are you? 
I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. I, I'm not sure uh, if, uh, because I, uh, I talked to several b- before that were operating uh, in a sleep-deprived mode, I'm not sure if you drew the short straw for this assignment or not. <laughs> I, I managed to get some sleep last night. So, oh, you did. So, uh, so I, I got the short straw uh, to do the interview, but only because I got some sleep. <laughs> well, good for you. Hey, uh, for, tell us a little bit about what the lead-up is. Uh, to July the 1st is like uh, for you and the rest of your crew at Archangel Fireworks? Uh, Well, the months of May and June are very busy for us. Uh, We produce about 40 Canada Day shows, 40-plus Canada Day shows uh, across four provinces. Um, So there's probably about uh, back of the envelope, Thirty-five hundred hours, man hours, go into uh, getting those shows off the ground uh, that happen uh, May and June, um, leading up to Canada Day. So there's a lot of work behind it. No kidding. How many of those shows were here in Manitoba, Sean? Uh, I would estimate probably that we were around the thirty mark for Manitoba. Wow. <laughs> that, is a, that is a busy, busy schedule for sure. So I, I wanted to ask you, in addition to the fireworks displays that you put on, um, of course, you also sell fireworks uh, out of the store. Is there one item in particular, and, and I thought maybe because you're the manager of consumer sales, I felt <laughs> a little comfortable asking this. There one item in particular that stands out as being more popular than any others, you know, where people come with the, I got to have this, or, you know, this is the one that I came in for. Uh, you know, we've got a number of different items that are very popular. Uh, we've got uh, about, at this point, 15 Archangel brand pieces that are really popular. But uh, it rotates every year. There's new stuff. There's new things that people ask for. But one thing that people have been asking for every year uh, is the Menace. And that's been a popular piece for I would say at least 15 years now. Now Describe what the Menace does and why it is so popular then, please, Sean. The Menace is a 25-shot cake. Uh, It's called the cake because it kind of looks like a a cake. It's a little box. You light it once. Uh, It has 25 shots of red tails to huge bursts of silver crackling chrysanthemums. Yeah, it's I could really see. rapid fire, and people love it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I could see why people would certainly uh, uh, be uh, belly it up to the counter to get their hands on one of those. Now, in terms of, of fireworks sales, uh, is it, you know, a, a lot of the times we're, we're creatures of, of nature. We wait till the very last minute to buy these things. So is there a crush at the counter uh, leading up to July the 1st uh, for consumer sales as well, uh, Sean? Or, or, or do people try to buy ahead? Some people do buy ahead. This year, I think people really did wait till the last minute. Uh, usually kind of the whole month of June is very busy. Uh, but this year, the beginning of June started off a little bit slow for us. Uh, and we had a ton of people here over the last week. Oh, okay. So, uh, so it was the usual crush then. <laughs> it was, it was. Yeah. Are, are fireworks still every bit as popular as they have been? And, and are, are they growing in popularity? Uh, I think 
we've seen a slight decline in the popularity of fireworks. And we talk about, you know, hypothesize about the different reasons why we've seen a, a slight decrease in their popularity. And we tend to think that, you know, in 2017, we had Canada Day 150. It was a huge celebration all across the country. People did tons of fireworks. We had tons of sales here. So, we talk about something that we call fireworks hangover, <laughs> yeah. where, where after Canada Day 150, I think some people said, let's just give it a rest for a while. Yeah, no, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, they're, they're probably saving themselves up for Manitoba 150 next year, because that's, well, that's probably going to be a party. Absolutely, absolutely, and we will be involved in many events uh, surrounding that. Yeah, and, and because that doesn't really happen on a long weekend, does it? Uh, you know what? I'm not sure uh, when 150 happens. I yeah, know that I, a lot of the celebrations will be will be planned around the weekend, but I don't think it's a long weekend. Yeah, I, well, I know, I know even for Manitoba's so-called 150th birthday, it happens on May the 12th, and this year it just happened to fall on Mother's Day. So okay, yeah, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> a lot of lucky mothers out there, maybe. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> well, they want fireworks. <laughs> We'll give you fireworks. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Sean, thanks a bunch for this, uh, and, and I hope everybody gets rested up. I guess uh, things really don't slow down much over the summer, though, with all the, the country fairs and that sort of thing. I would imagine you, get, uh, you keep pretty busy over the course of uh, uh, July and August. Yeah, straight through to September weekend, we keep uh, reasonably busy, uh, and then uh, it tapers off a little bit, but then we get hit again with New Year's. Oh, there you go. Okay, well, <laughs> thanks a bunch for doing this. No problem. Sean Proctor, who is the manager of consumer sales for Archangel Fireworks. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.